1: From the French press in downtown Lafayette, we're out to
2: lunch with Christian Mader, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. There can be a lot of pressure to take on the family business, especially when the family name becomes synonymous with the industry they work in. Imagine what it must be like to be a Hilton or a Disney or a Manning. Everybody copes with it differently and some embrace it. Some make their own mark on it, and some leave it all behind and do something else entirely. My guests today come from families well-known in the world of sports. Christian Williford is the son of Bo Williford, the legendary boxing coach and operator of the Cage Cajun Boxing Club. Williford's dad trained scores of boxers in Acadiana over the years and brought the Golden Gloves to Lafayette. Bo passed away this year after a brief bout with cancer, and Christian recently announced that he will close the club after nearly a four-decade run, but keep the Golden Gloves going. Christian, welcome to Out to Lunch.
3: Thank you for having me. Yeah.
2: Uh, My next guest first made a name for herself as a world trampoline champion. Uh, Lee Hennessy Robson was coached by her father, Jeff, a prominent name in competitive trampolining. And for the last two decades, however, Lee has earned a living as a stunt double and stunt coordinator. She was Demi Moore's double in G.I. Jane and Lucy Liu's in Charlie's Angels. And she's one of only a few hundred stunt women working in the film industry today. Lee, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. Yeah. So Christian, I'd really like to know a little bit more about the role that the boxing club played in your life. You trained there yourself, right?
3: I did, yes. Um, Quite a unique uh, experience growing up with my father. Uh, Great man, touched uh, a lot of people's lives and and helped change a lot of people's lives. And so that was probably the biggest thing that I took away over the years. um, Growing up there, seeing how even when you didn't think there was a way that you could help somebody he would find a way um, and, and you boxing was his vehicle the gym was just his vehicle to get two people and help them that was really what uh, what his calling was in life whether he realized it or not uh, as a young man that was his calling and so um, the discipline of seeing how tough it was how much energy he put into it. Um, the experiences that I had with professional boxers as well as amateurs and then competing myself, there was no doubt that it takes an immense amount of discipline to be successful in the sport. So there's a lot of that, that day, day in and day out is a part of my life, that just, you know, being disciplined and being able to hold myself accountable for my own actions.
2: So I imagine so you, you, um, you have your own company now, right? Yes, sir. Um, so, so how has that translated into the way that you operate your business?
3: Um, taking care of people more, more than anything. Uh, we really strive to create an environment for our employees that not only do they want to come to work and do the work, but they're happy to come to do the work and be a part of the company. Uh, we do a number of different things. We have a free gym membership for anybody after 30 days. We do, um, we have a community PTO program. They can volunteer in the community to earn paid days off, even if they just work one day a month. The goal there is for them to find their place, that they find joy and fulfillment in giving back to the community in hopes that it can make a greater impact than, than just them trying to earn those paid days off. Uh, and we we really work to get to know who they are and what's going on in their life as much as they will let us, so that anywhere that we can help them, uh, we're able to. We have a program called Always Pursuing Excellence, where we give them the opportunity to meet with a manager each month, talk about what's going on in their lives, and try to help connect them, if necessary, to uh, give them guidance and connect them to resources that we may know about that they do not, that can help them in different areas of their life. So, so I should
2: clarify that you're, I didn't mention the name of your company. It's Apex Commercial Cleaning, right? Correct. That's Apex right, right.
3: stands for Always Providing Excellence. So our employee program to help them uh, grow uh, and, fu- and fulfill their dreams and goals in their life is the Always Pursuing Excellence program. That's
2: great. Um, so, Lee, you know, going from trampolines to stunts makes a lot of sense to me, but I'm still curious how you made that leap. And I, there, There's no pun intended. On that, but, um, I mean, how did you do it? I mean, you were in, uh, you know, in competitive trampolining, and then you make the move over I mean, tumbling and all that makes sense, but it's, it's not the same industry.
1: No, it's not the same industry. And I have, my degree is... I got a college degree and I did not intend to ever work in the film business. It just sort of, I stumbled into it, also no pun intended. <laughs> uh, that I, uh, my first, I have a master's degree in communication and my first job out of graduate school was working on Capitol Hill and I worked for a member of Congress and Congressman Jimmy Hayes who was uh, representing the Lafayette area at the time. <clears throat> Um, and um, I just wasn't cut up for sitting down <laughs> for long hours working. I still needed to be active. And I had this crazy... Um, uh, I had visited California, and I was ready for a change in life. And I wanted to be somewhere where I could have a physically active career of some sort. And so I sold everything I owned. I bought a jalopy old car for 500 bucks and I drove all the way across the country uh, without, the, without the consent of my parents and my family or friends. They thought I was nuts. Yeah. But after a short while of being in Los Angeles, I started to meet people. And I started to train again, trampolining, um, found a gym, and there was a bunch of stunt people training in the gym. And they saw what I could do, and they just said, you'd be a good stunt performer. <clears throat> and I was like, well, how do you do that? They explained, you know, the basics of what to do, and on my very first audition, I got cast. And it was for a... Um, it was for a print ad, actually, for Ralph Lauren sportswear, <clears throat> and um, uh, but he filmed it as well, so that gave me the opportunity to join the Screen Actors Guild. So I joined the Screen Actors Guild, and I just started sort of feeling my way around until um, until I was a bona fide stunt woman and didn't have to do part-time jobs anymore and things like that, you know, the starving actor story that you all oh. heard. So eventually it, it started to pay off, so I stuck with it. I enjoyed it. That was the thing.
2: So something I'm really curious about is, is, I mean, are you paid based on how risky a stunt is? Like if I say, oh, well, we got a building and you got to jump 10 stories out, that's going to be this many dollars, but if it's 20 stories, you know, you you, you tack on an extra premium per story. I mean, what? How, how do they actually? Is there a risk component yes, in terms of how you're compensated? There is. Yeah. There is.
1: There's a basic daily rate that all actors get, and then it goes up from there. Yeah. So for actors, it's the more important their role is, they get paid more. For some people, the bigger risk they take, they'll get paid more. So um, so that's how it works. But yeah, there's a base pay. So if I walked on the set and they never got to my scene. I still get paid for that day yeah. That's,
2: yeah that's good you get paid for showing up right yeah sure <laughs> so, so christian i mean you you boxed a lot yourself i mean how long were you in the ring
3: uh for about seven or eight years i competed uh as an amateur boxer yeah.
2: and and when, how old were you when you stopped
3: uh 20 21. i started about 13 and uh was fortunate enough to have a successful amateur career yeah. and more or less when I graduated high school, I didn't really have the desire to get up at 5 a.m. and run every morning, go to school or work, go, you know, when I was a student at UL, I didn't want to go to school, go from school to work, go to the gym, work out four or five hours and start over the next day. I was just ready for a break. So I, um, I still competed, but not at the level that I had as as a when I was in high school. So
2: did so what was that like with you know with, with your dad or I mean I would imagine, you know, maybe other people outside of your family might have put more pressure on you to say like, hey, you're shouldn't you be a boxer, like a dad, right. should you follow the footsteps? But I got the impression that maybe like your dad wanted you to be able to do what it is you wanted to do, right?
3: Absolutely. I have four brothers, um, all of which were state golden gloves champions at some point in our lives. Um, and those were all choices that we made. We we got to spend time around the gym, no matter what, because that was like going to his office. And so there was never any pressure. We did have to do something. We could not just be stagnant. We had to play a sport or be involved in extracurricular activity, music, Boy Scouts, something. He had to do something, we had to stay active. But um, of course, I think for any boy, if their father is the coach of a sport, there's just, they're going to be drawn to it. So we all were drawn to it at some point or another. Um, but actually, Deirdre Gogarty Morrison, who y'all had on recently, um, the author of uh, My Call to the Ring, she, he appointed her to be my coach when I was younger because he didn't want to take it home. He said, I, you know, Deirdre will be your coach. I will be here, but she is going to be the person who primarily trains you. Uh, and I remember kind of being upset and him saying, look, when we go home, I don't want to bring anything home. I don't want to fuss and at something uh, at the gym, and then you bring it, and then we bring it home. So, probably about the time I was 15 or 16, it was a lot more of just, you know, she was still my trainer, but him more involved. Um, and at that age, that's when I started going to national level competitions and things. And so, she wouldn't come to the competitions, she would stay and operate the gym, and he would come with me. Um, and of course, he was always in my corner, it was, you know, she would be there too. Um, but It was a very wise move on his part where he had the ability to have someone else kind of take the reins in the beginning. And then that way, if it wasn't something I really wanted to do, our relationship wasn't tarnished as a result of a sport that, at the end of the day, is not more important than our relationship. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, Lee, I'm curious what the transition has been like for you coming back. So obviously you're in Louisiana now, right? And there's film industry here, but it's got to be not quite like what it is in California. I mean, what's... What's been the job-seeking life like here?
1: I beg to differ. Okay, um, good. <laughs> uh, I, I work more here than I did in Cal- I mean, I had reached a peak in, in L.A. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, it started as... The film industry is a little rough on women. So the older we get, the less op- opportunities there are. And even before we get old, <laughs> the less opportunities we are. But um, when I moved here, uh, it was a smaller talent pool. That worked to my advantage, and I worked uh, my first couple of years here particularly well in New Orleans. I was in New Orleans for nine years. Um, I worked quite a bit, and uh, since I moved to Lafayette, um, I haven't worked quite as much because I'm a little further away from the action, however, uh, but I moved back for different reasons. I didn't move back to work. So, so, yeah, so actually uh, Louisiana has a booming film industry, and we have a lot of, you know, opportunities here and it's been great for me and I wanted to piggyback on something he said earlier my dad did the same move when I was a young teenager he's he at that age where your where your daughter and father relationship starts to change a bit because you're not a little girl anymore he got a coach for me as well uh, who Don Waters was one of dad's uh, world champions, and Donald started coaching us, basically started coaching the whole team, but primarily he started it because Dad was concerned about, relation, about you know, father-daughter and that I would be mad and, Dad, you didn't work hard with me today, or whatever the reason was. So I had the same experience. My dad did exactly the same thing.
3: It's funny. It's almost identical because, mm-hmm. um, as Christian knows, Deirdre is also a world champion. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So... Both world, both fathers had us have world champion trainers, so right. setting mm-hmm. you up for success for sure at that point.
2: So, so when you have folks that are, you know, they're doing this at the highest level and, I mean, they take you under their wing, and does it make it difficult to kind of say, like, you know, this is great, I enjoy it, I appreciate it, but I'm going to do something else. I mean, what, what does that put a strain or is that an easy thing to do? You mean our, our fathers or us personally? I mean, I guess it would be both. I mean, you've got people both in your lives, you know, obviously – the parent side of it but then also you know the the trainers who themselves I mean have have excelled at that you know I mean is it is it something where you're like man I I just I have to own what I want to do or is it more of a you know an easier transition to make out I guess I should say that I'm also this. My dad did not um, play any famous sports or anything, but like you know, I my, my family they're all engineers, and I went in a completely different direction. So I sympathize. Right. The oh, yeah. I yeah,
1: yeah. Well, for for me, it was just, it was organic. You know, I I had, my athletic career ran its course, and um, I was uh, just like anything else. It's just as everybody evolves over time especially as you get older and your life experiences change. It was an organic move for me so it was um, when I, it, he did not however, uh, my parents neither one of them thought it was too great of an idea for me going to stunts and I'll never forget my mom saying to me, well okay we accept this because I already moved. <laughs> I was in California. Just don't jump off any tall buildings. So whenever I did a 100-foot high full, I would not tell them until after it was done because you know, I was safe and sound. But uh, but no, it was just an organic thing, and they, and they ended up becoming supportive over time. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you know, my dad, of course, wanted all of his kids to follow whatever made them happy. And um, I think he knew from his experience in working with so many youth who boxed that, you know, maybe boxing wasn't their calling even if they were very talented but there were things that were instilled in them through their training and their competition that they brought to do other things successful in their life so i know that he was glad that i had that background and experience for moving on in life but the same with Deidre as you all know um, from her podcast whatever your passion is follow it blindly hundred and ten percent, I'm pretty sure is what she said on the podcast. And and that's something that I've heard her say before. And my dad was pretty much the same way. And you know, for me as a kid, I thought boxing was my passion. But as I got older and I really was more mature, I realized that my passion really wasn't boxing as much as it was family. And and my and I always had a great relationship with my dad and so For me, boxing men I got to travel places with him. I got to hang out with him all the time. I got to hear all the stories of all the different experiences he had in life. And I got to meet a lot of cool people along the way. So, uh, you know, it it was quite, for me and all of my four brothers, we had quite a unique upbringing uh, in comparison to the average kid.
2: Can you talk to us a little bit about the decision to to close the the club?
3: Absolutely. So... um, When he was diagnosed, we asked him, what do you want to do with the gym? You know, through treatment and all these things. And he had had a a confidential conversation with me prior to his diagnosis to let me know he was planning on closing the gym. The, had just been struggling for years. uh, I say years, for a while at that point. And at his age, he was just kind of ready to call it quits. He was 72 and he started boxing at six years old. So, you know, 66 years of his life was boxing. Even when he didn't box in between retiring as a professional and working in the oil field, that's how he got down here. And then starting to manage people, he still was involved in some way or another. Um, It was something he very much loved, but it wasn't something that I loved. And he had, in the same way. Mm -hmm. And what I realized after he passed was that I really didn't want, it was hard for me to see it go away because he had asked us keep the gym open until October when the Olympic qualifiers are in Ohio. We had some athletes competing. He said if they win, keep it open until December for the trials, and if they win there and they're on the Olympic team, maybe it'll draw up enough traction and momentum around the gym that it'll start to do better. Um, Unfortunately, the athletes that we had compete in Ohio did not uh, move on uh, in the tournament. Uh, They didn't win, so they didn't progress, um, and so we made the decision at that point that uh, we would close the gym at the end of November based on his wishes, but it was very important to him that the Louisiana Golden Gloves stay intact. He told me himself uh, on more than one occasion that that was more important to him for me to keep going than the gym. And I think not only because it's it brings something to the community here that is an over a hundred year old organization that everybody's got a grandma or I mean a grandpa or uncle. They got some grandmas too. Yeah, some grandmas. Yeah. Not as much back then as they might <laughs> nowadays. But you know, um, it seemed like you could talk to anybody, and they've got a family member that's a Golden Gloves champion at some point or competed. And so there's a nostalgia about it that is uh, has some value to it. And he was um, he was very proud of being able to bring it to Lafayette, and it took a lot of work for him to do that. So um, knowing those things made the decision a little easier. And I'm Matt. It's a full-time job, and it's a non-profit organization. No pay. Not that that was a a deterrent for me, uh, but it did grow my appreciation for him and what he did, because if he didn't have professional boxers or he wasn't promoting or matchmaking or show, then it wasn't money that, you know, they were good years, but for the most part, all the money went back to the gym. And he would take, he would drive 23 hours one way with one fighter across the country to bring him to a tournament. I mean, he was just hopelessly devoted to it.
2: You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mater. I'm talking with former boxer Christian Williford and stuntwoman Lee Hennessy Robson. We'll be right back after a brief break. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mater. And I'm talking with Christian Williford of Raging Cajun Boxing Club and stuntwoman Lee Hennessy Robson. Christian and Lee, let's take a break for a second. do something a little different. This is a segment we call The Checklist. So what I've got um, here uh, is an assortment, you might say, of 25 random questions that are designed to be revealing. Um, So the idea is pretty simple. I'm going to ask each of you to pick a number between 1 and 25, ask you the question, and we'll see where this goes. So um, Lee, let's start with you. Twelve. Twelve. Okay. Um, ooh. Okay. <laughs> this is a loaded question. If oh, you could no. change, <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> if you could change one thing about Acadiana, what would it be?
1: Oh, that's a t- that is a tough one. Um, we're not supposed to talk politics, so. Uh, <laughs>
2: you can talk politics. I do that for a living. Oh. But <laughs>
1: I'm apprehensive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't blame it. Yeah. Um well, I I would oh, that's a really tough one. I've only been back here for about like I said two and a half to 3 years. So I'm getting reacquainted with Acadiana. Um I would I live in Northside yeah. and um i love it because it's older and because the architecture is older because it's more of a creative vibe to it. And um, and I chose that intentionally and I don't think I don't think life it does enough for that side of town. Mm-hmm. They're building constantly on the south. They're talking about putting but on our side of town they just want to put this big overhead, you know, uh, what do you call it, the Causeway or whatever through it? Oh, the
2: it. Uh, I-49 connector. Yeah, the yeah. connector.
1: Um, and instead of talking about developing businesses there and probably doing doing more, like I have to drive um, 15 minutes, to 20 minutes to go to a grocery store. Um, and those things should be on our side of town as well. We should have a Trader Joe's. We should have a... Uh, uh, you know, more everyday businesses that Mm. that side of the town needs. So that's one of the big things that I would change. I would make that uh, Evangeline area sort of more of a a beautify it and attract more people there. I think I would do... Things like that.
2: Yeah. I mean, what was the, your first... So you grew up in Louisiana, but not Lafayette, correct? I
1: did. I grew up in Lafayette, but oh, I've Lafayette, lived all that. over the country yeah. since about my early 20s, I suppose, is when I left Lafayette, and uh, moved to DC, and then I moved to... where was it? I was in Austin, then DC, then California, then Miami, then back to California, then New Orleans, and then here. <laughs> so I've lived all over the country and I've traveled all over the world. So yeah. um, So what, what was different when you got back? Um, well, I had to reacquaint myself like where a lot of businesses had closed, a lot of it had opened. Mm. Um, the, the city had expanded a lot down south, you know, Broussard, Youngsville, the, the Ambassador Caffrey, uh, Kali Saloon area uh, just, you know, had grown up. Uh, well, it seemed to me overnight, but it's 10, 30, 20 years. I don't know how long it, it developed. So that was all new. Um, so those are, like, the main things, I think, that's changed. It's really expanded, and it's 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 uh, it's grown out Uh I grew up near life at high school, and that was Southside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
2: no. I mean, yeah, and it has grown exceptionally over yeah. the last 10 to 15 years. So mm-hmm. You're right about the perception. Um, yeah. So, Christian, let's, let's get you to pick a number between 1 and 25. Seven. Seven, okay. Uh, what is your greatest extravagance? How do you mean? I, I guess um, what's something you indulge yourself with? Oh, my
3: God. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I will say this, this is not really a serious answer, but my sure. wife will get a kick out of this when she listens to it, but Fruit Gushers <laughs> would probably be my greatest <laughs> extravagance of indulging, uh, at least at home, because I, uh, growing up with four brothers, Yeah, this comes in a pack of six, you yeah. just, you get very limited in what you get out of there. Um, I would say, uh, I, I'm really family, I know it sounds probably not the right answer for the type of question, but... Uh, just the way that we were raised growing up, uh, family was always very important. And I was very fortunate, not just from my father and the person that he was and what I was able to learn from him. And uh, not just from what he told me, but by his example, but also my mother who is definitely uh, should become a saint uh, with raising five boys in our house was (laughs) full of people. So not just family in the sense of your, your blood relatives, but there are people who are family that you know, Deidre is by all means my sister. She moved here when I was three and as far as I know, she's, she's, as far as I consider, she's family. And there are a ton of other people that way. And that was because growing up, there was never a, uh, there was always a vacancy sign on my parents' house. We had lots of people stay with us. Um, so being able to spend time with family and those people who you value, that's probably what I enjoy indulging in the most, is just spending time, valuable time with family, because time is the one commodity you cannot make more of and you cannot get back.
2: You must be very proud of, you know, the I mean, it sounds like your dad did so much outreach, and I mean, just hearing you talk so much about, you know, the degree to which it, you know, it went outside of the four walls of the studio, I mean the, 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 the boxing club, wherever that would be. I mean, you must be really proud about that. I mean, to be able to talk to people and have some... Right. I, I know people who went to the club, and I'm like, right. I've never been around boxing in my life.
3: Absolutely. Um, one of the cooler things that uh, I have indulged in as well since he passed away, and I used to do it too before, but now more than ever, I'll just go to YouTube, I'll just go to Google and type in his name, or go to YouTube and look for a fighter that he had, um, watch him in an interview, listen to him, because there's uh, always was on radio interview shows, many local, but some internet-based radio shows, uh, podcasts, and so I'll go look for those things, and it's it's really cool to be able to hear and see. I don't have to go look for a home video, you know what I mean, to go watch him, and it's and a lot of it is experiences that I didn't have with him that I'm able to watch and see how he was in this fight or in this press conference, so. Uh, Very proud, no doubt about that. Uh, and anybody who knows me and knows, even if they don't know him, but especially those who know him, know. Uh, very proud to be his son,
2: Lee. I'm curious, you know, if you've got any parts coming up that we should know about.
1: Well, I lately have been um, uh, doing. Uh, there, there's a TV show called uh, Filthy Branch. That's brand new. and yeah. hasn't aired yet. Yeah. It stars Kim Cattrall, and lately I've been doubling Kim Cattrall. Um, and but the way this business works is, you really don't know what you drop. I'll get a call on a Monday and say, are you available on Wednesday? So it's it's always last minute because the cast the some the people are the very last people to be cast. So they have to uh, so. Um, that's why I don't even know, but I can say with confidence that I have been deviling Kim, and I uh, did have I, and I, I will be doing whatever comes up for her on that
2: TV
3: show. I can see it. can't you see it? What's that? Kim I I control? See
1: She's blonde
2: anyway
3: see it, <laughs> I'm brunette by that's, the
1: way.'
2: That's a, very, that's a very good point. I was, I was curious about that. I mean how do they, I mean to what extent do they really need to match you up with? The person that you're going to double. I mean, how well, much do you got to be a dead ringer for him? In some cases, you need to be
1: a dead ringer. It depends on what the shot calls for. Um, um, in, in some cases, I've doubled some actresses right now. I can't think of any right way where they didn't mind if my if there was a. Uh, a shot of my profile for example because I looked enough like the actress but definitely being the right size is the most important thing um, and then the, the next most important thing is, is uh, well your weight, that's what I mean your, your height and weight is very important and then, then they start looking at hair color and facial features and things like that in, uh, in Kim's case, um, she's a, a, a couple inches taller than me, maybe one inch, and she's blonde. So they just put a wig on me, and they have excellent uh, hair and makeup people, whose job is to is to make you look like uh, the actress. Um, so I mean, I. Uh, It's it's, they, they do miracles sometimes. I've seen, not in my case, I've never had this before, but I've seen other actors where they actually have prosthetics for their faces as well. That's extreme. That's for big actors like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who looks unique. So his double, you know, they might do a little prosthetic on the nose or whatever. Um... And, um, but I've never had to do that, but uh, I've had them have to work on my skin tone, like maybe I have freckles or, you know, where they definitely, I have a tattoo on my foot and they definitely have to disguise that. So there's definitely little magic tricks that the hair and makeup department
2: can do. It's all magic, right?
1: Yes, it is magic. You've heard of Spoken Mirrors. It exists.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Christian and Lee, it's been great chatting with you both. Thanks for joining me today on How to Launch Acadiana.
1: Thank you. Thank
3: you.
2: My guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana today have been Christian Williford of Raging Cajun Boxing Club and the Golden Gloves and stuntwoman Lee Hennessey Robson. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on Care of Yes, you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Christian and Lee by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast anywhere you get your podcasts and on our website itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on our Out to Lunch Acadiana social media. These photos were taken by Lucius Faho You can find more of his photos at laughphoto.com. The producer of Out to Lunch Acadiana is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Morrell. Our associate producer is Molly Richard. Our researchers are Anne Christian and Maggie Mendel. Today's show is engineered by Kieran McIntosh. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRVS 88.7 FM. I'm Christian Mader, editor of the Current, Lafayette's community-owned nonprofit newsroom. Thanks for joining me. For more great stories and conversation, check out thecurrentla.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter. I'll see you here again next week around the lunch table for more business Acadiana style and Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye bye.
0: Out to Lunch Acadiana is recorded live over lunch at the French Press in downtown Lafayette. Since 2009, the French Press has been serving Cajun brunch and providing custom catering for uniquely personalized events. The French Press is open seven days a week till 2 p.m. with dishes like Cajun Eggs Benedict and Sweet Baby Breezes. The Atalanche Acadiana theme music, Encore Monsieur Nice Guy, is written by Mitchell Foreman and performed by Mitchell Foreman and Andre Michaud. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones-Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Support for Out to Lunch Acadiana comes from the Wyndham Garden Lafayette, located off Pinhook near Calais Saloon. Wyndham Garden Lafayette is a pet and family friendly hotel with reception space for large and intimate events, free parking, free Wi-Fi, and a free shuttle within three miles that includes the airport and downtown restaurants.